0: It is so good to be here, and I'm still just kind of dazzled by the talk we just heard. Um, I don't know, maybe some of you will know there's a book that exists by an author, Taylor Caldwell, and it's called The Listener, the UK version, which is always nicer made and less expensive. It's called The Man Who Listens, and the preface to that book says, it's written during the space race, and she writes, Human beings have a great need, but it's not to go to the moon to have somebody listen to them and then the whole book is this imagined but powerfully true context in which actual human beings get to be heard and the power that has and I'm just really grateful for what we just heard Um, so thank you when I heard the theme of this year's conference help I think there might be an exclamation point I can't quite remember but help I was immediately reminded of a book that I read from the last time I was at a Mockingbird conference, which was almost 10 years ago, which is a little hard to believe. Um, And it's where the title for my talk comes from, of what value is it? This is a book by a guy named Mark Rutherford. His real name was William Hale White, and I won't say anything about him. But there's a character in that book named George who's gone to chapel his whole life. We find out he's never had a religious doubt. But then tragedy comes to his life. His wife, they're pretty young, dies in some very sort of ordinary and believable, but not for that reason, any less tragic circumstances. And three months have gone by, and then the book says this. In those dark three months, the gospel that George knew did nothing for him. It's surely a terrible charge to bring against a religion, the author writes. If in the many wars that people have to wage against misfortune, disease, sadness, and sorrow, they are provided with neither help nor comfort. If it cannot do this, of what value is it? And when I hear help, I'm sort of haunted by that question and I find myself saying, oh, is there actually any? And that was the kind of question that was bubbling and boiling as I thought this through. But part of what I realized as I was reflecting on that is as much as that is our shared and honest question, we also tend to hide from that question. There's a character in the book Janet's Repentance by George Eliot who just says, you know, our daily familiar life is nothing but a hiding of ourselves from each other. And part of what we hide is our need for help, our cry for help. And so part of what we need, part of the help we need, is just honesty. We need to do what Shakespeare says in Henry IV, and tell truth and shame the devil. It was once said of Freud, and I'm going to make the case that it's even better said of St. Paul, that he was a great truth teller on the unspeakables of the human condition. And I hope to do a little speaking about the things that we hide from sometimes. Um, There's actually an image, I don't know if it's going to go up there or not, but the grave of John Bunyan is something that does this for me. I'm not gonna really talk too much about this, but you can go to London, Bunhill Cemetery, you'll find the grave of John Bunyan. And what I find so powerful about this is that the grave, which is obviously in some meaningful sense, reckoning with a reality, with death, is also honest about how life feels. So on the one side, you have the human being sort of overburdened by the weight of living and trying to go on. And it's just a kind of honest recognition of what life can feel like so often. And yet, there's hope on the other side. There's relief, there's something like rest and freedom and forgiveness. And I hope in our few minutes together we'll hear both of those things. Just some honest diagnosis of why life can feel hard. Or at least just say together honestly that life can feel hard, but not end there, because I do think there's hope at the bedrock and on the horizon. But I want to ask these sets of questions at the bedrock, where our actual need in honesty is. So there's an author named Jose Ortega y Gasset, and he said that what a person that has a clear head does is that they look life in the face. And the thing that looking life in the face will always reveal is what he calls a simple truth, that to live is to feel lost. But then he goes on to say, the honest are like the shipwrecked. They will look around for something to which to cling, and they'll do so with a tragic and ruthless glance. And here's the key line. He says, these are the only genuine ideas, the ideas of the shipwrecked. All the rest are rhetoric, posturing, and farce. Now, I'm standing here, and I bet there's going to be rhetoric, posturing, and farce. I don't want there to be. But I'm a human being, and I'm a particular one of them. I've got real stuff going on in my life that's not quite at the bedrock. For example, does anyone know a good plumber in Birmingham? Um, That's where I'm currently living. And I think people should speak from where they're honestly living, but sort of where they were living like six minutes ago, not where they're currently living, because if I talk about plumbing needs in Birmingham and what my wife's facing right now, I'll start to cry. So we're not gonna do that. But seriously, if you know a good plumber in Birmingham, talk to me afterwards. We've got issues. Our house looks like New York City right now. So. I want to get to these genuine questions of the shipwrecked. But because we hide our honest cry for help, what we need is a kind of archaeology. And we need to do some excavation at the site of human need so that we can uncover honesty. And what I want to suggest is that St. Paul has a shovel that he can help us with a diagnosis that digs beneath the rubble and makes contact with reality, that we can have some honesty, but that there's also hope. Now, part of where this honesty comes through are just in some of the, the big patterns in the New Testament of talking with sort of lived and revealed realism about the fact that it's hard to be a human being. It's hard to live. It's scary to die. And the New Testament doesn't hide from, but looks at those things that we often feel but fear to face. They can just do it with the big phrases that we know. Human beings are in Adam or under sin. But it doesn't just describe them in the abstract. What I think is powerful is that it also describes them in ways that actually map onto life as it feels like to live it. So when you read Paul's letter to the Romans and he says something like, I don't understand myself. The things that I don't want to do, I do, and the things that I want to do, I do not do. You find yourself saying, well, I don't understand myself either, but that guy seems to understand me. There's that kind of of resonance and honesty going on. But I want to go in a slightly different direction. There's a phrase in Paul that I know means a lot to the community here at Mockingbird, and I want to think through how it helps us honestly describe what life feels like, but then also be a source for hope. So Paul says or describes a form that life can take, as justification by works of law. I'm not so much going to explore what that means as how that describes both how life can feel and why it helps us be honest, but it's not the source of hope. See, to say that we are justified or righteous by works of law is to say that not even the best and good, holy law that God gave is the basis for what God will finally see and say to us. And if that's true of the law, that's also true of things that are a lot less than the law. If you think your bank account or your prestige or your power or the group that you're part of or the things that you think count as helpful will be enough, to secure the basis for your belovedness, then you just have an impoverished version of justification by works of the law. You're thinking that your inheritance or your achievements will be the basis for what is said to you. I would translate it something like this. We live under the failing and fearful assumption that the value of and the verdict on our life will be based on our life. That our biography has to carry the burden of our being loved. What this does is it turns life into what Bob Dylan calls a weary tune that weighs a person's worth by their pedigree or their performance, or their past, by what the Book of Common Prayer calls the things done and the things left undone. You know what this feels like. This is like what George Herbert says in that poem, A True Hymn, where he just describes a human being, and he says, a human being is a creature that is sighing to be approved. That's what life feels like. For me, a lot of the times, I'll let you think through for you. One of the things I think of when I think of Mockingbird, I realized this as I was walking down Madison Avenue in the rain, and so it was sort of like being in the shower, so it was very conductive for uh, good thinking. And I was walking, I thought, Mockingbird is like a group of collectors. They're like a group of enthusiasts, but they're not so into like stamps or coins or baseball cards or antique dolls or stone fruit. I don't know what people collect. Mockingbird is a group that sort of likes to collect tales of the tragedy and the comedy of human air—that that is, the human hunger for esteem. What Thornton Wilder in the Ides of March calls that serpent's nest which is lodged within us all, which is at once our torture and our delight. A thirst for praise, the necessity of self-justification in which life becomes a series of postures before a mirror. The reason I love the archaic Greeks... Did anyone see that sentence as the next obvious segue? <laughs> the reason I loved the archaic Greeks, especially in their myths about and their memories of the Bronze Age, is because they were very honest about this. They celebrated this. They weren't shy about the fact that people were hungry for esteem and it was a way of dealing with death. They created a whole sort of ethos and culture around it. And it becomes a very helpful lens through which to see the things that are just as true of us, but in a more hidden, in implicit rather than explicit way. You see, what the Greeks recognized is that life is a confounding smallness, bounded on either side by the everlastingness of time that has been emptied of yourself. But their approach to defeat meaninglessness and mortality was by being memorable, They searched for what they called kleos. It's one of the greatest words in any language because it means two things. It means glory or fame or honor or prestige, but it also means the songs in which those great deeds, that fame is remembered. What you wanted was kleos. You wanted to live a great life and then live on in the songs about your great life. It's a song worthy life. You wanted people to notice and sing about, to record and repeat and remember what you had done. There are no contemporary parallels, especially on this place called the internet, which I heard things about. You kept saying, go on the internet and find, which was great, but what if you can't find the internet? That was my question. But this quest just permeates Greek literature. So if you read Homer, for example, in the Iliad, which, by the way, it's originally called the Song, the Kleos of Achilles. But if you read the Iliad, Homer says, well, I learned from my mother, Thetis, that if I stay in Troy and fight, my journey home is gone. I'll never make it back. I'm going to die. But my glory, my song, my Kleos will never die. I will die, but my song will always be sung which is exactly what the beautiful Helen says to Prince Hector. For generations, we will live in song. That was the great hope. Maybe you know the poem of Pindar. I'll leave the Greeks behind after this, but they gave me a microphone and I like to talk about the Greeks, and so that's what I was gonna do for a little bit. It's distracting me from the plumbing issues. There's a lot going on, so thanks for being here. But Pindar in his Pythian ode says, creatures of a day, what is someone? What is no one? Man, a shadow's dream. But when God-like glory comes, a bright light shines and life is sweet. That's the great hope. That your biography will be a basis for your prestige, your glory, your being remembered. Your life will count. You will be valuable because of the life you have lived. And maybe people will sing or post or et cetera about it. Now, again, I said I like the Greeks because they're just honest about it. In our era, it takes a little bit more work and indirection and excavation to get to this core that we shared with the Greeks. We need that truth teller of the unspeakable of the human condition that I mentioned At the beginning, one of those great truth tellers of the unspeakables, of the human condition, was a guy named Ernest Becker, who won a Pulitzer Prize winning book that some people still reference the title of, but nobody reads anymore, called The Denial of Death. And Becker, I think, amazingly said at roots, human beings are those who have to deal with, deny, and try to defy the reality of their mortality. And what's going on at the heart of every human being? of every creature is what he calls the desire to stand out, to be the one in creation. Our tragic destiny is that we desperately try to justify ourselves as an object of primary value. And underneath all of our living and our hoping and our hurting, there throbs the ache of cosmic specialness. Now see, the Greeks just celebrated that. Becker had to get under the hiding and back to the heart where our deep question actually lives. Help, and is there any? And we're getting close to that. But what happens in all of this is that what life actually becomes or what it actually feels like to live it is to live a kind of assumed equation in which if we do enough and we have enough, we will be enough. But what that actually translates to at the level of experience is that life becomes an exhausting, fragile, failing, an endless audition for love. We compete, We compare, we keep score, we play a billion versions, that's what cultural distinctions are about, of a single status game, that's why we're fundamentally all the same. But in this game where we compare, compete, and keep score, everyone loses. This is probably why Becker's definition of psychosis in The Denial of Death, I think this is one of the great lines in the 20th century, his definition of psychosis is the typical human, that's already a great start, the definition of psychosis is the typical human, but wholly unreal belief in self-justification. And then he adds this sort of editorial comment, perhaps that is why man's chief characteristic is his tortured dissatisfaction with himself. Oh, oh, thank you very much. Amen. Uh, what happens here, and here I'm sort of coming back to Paul, is that life lived this way, in which our biography is carrying the burden of our being loved. It's this kind of life lives from that very first lie. Do you remember what the serpent whispers in the garden? You will not die. It's a denial of death. You will be like God. You can carry the weight of your worth and your belovedness. You will not die. You will be like God. But living this lie doesn't let us be God's beloved creatures. It forces us to be titans, to go back to the Greeks, to be like Atlas and to carry the weight of our own life, to deal with or defy our own death, and to finally bear the burden of our belovedness. But That's a heavy weight. That's like John Bunyan's tomb with that bent over, overburdened human being. It's just here that a question from Thornton Wilder always stands out. He says, when a human being is made to bear more than a human being can bear, what then? What then? And that's the question I want to just think about in a few minutes together. I'm not really sure how this is going to work, but I'm just going to try and we'll see what happens. Because I think right here, Paul has something to say at this question of Living, trying to carry the weight of our own worth being a burden that's too heavy to bear. I think we have something to say that's honest and full of hope. So it's going to go like this. you just: stick with me. Switching to this microphone. can you hear me? This is amazing technology. I've got this, I've got these sort of notes, which as you can tell are nothing but quotes from people. Remember that um, great song by Sarman and Garfunkel called I Am A Rock, which it says, I have my books and my poetry to protect me. And apparently I I do too, because I've obviously been hiding behind a lot of quotes, but we're gonna get a little more vulnerable now. But I just have a thing that says chairs question mark. That's what my notes say. So how are we supposed to know what's going to happen if that's all they say? But here's what I want to suggest is that in this pattern of living, in which we're bearing the burden of our own belovedness, God's love comes to us in the form of hitting pause on this pattern. This is what Paul's getting at when he talks about God's law being holy, righteous, and good. That's Romans 7. But it not having the role of making alive, of raising the dead. It says that in Galatians 3. If a law had been given that could make alive, then righteousness would be through the law. So that's not what it does. It's holy, righteous, and good, but it doesn't make alive. That's the job of something else. We'll get there. But what it does, he says in Romans 3, is through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law is a describing, diagnosing, honesty, excavating work and word of God. But I want to suggest that we can say a little more about how that actually happens, how the law does that work. It doesn't raise the dead. Its function is more like that boy in the sixth sense who has to live with and break through the denial and the deception so that someone who is dead can honestly reckon with that reality. It diagnoses the dead as dead. That was a real spoiler, by the way. I have ruined the movie if you have thought. I mean, the worst, the movie is only good if you didn't know that, and so I'm sorry. So, but this is how it actually works. In practice, okay, we in life experience a gap between who we are, let, let's let this chair represent that. This is who you are. We don't have to sensationalize. It's not better, it's not worse, just your ordinary human life, with its hopes, its dreams, its laughter, its tears, its losses, its successes, just who you are. But we always experience a gap between who we are and who we want to be, who we think we should be, who other people or other forces tell us we ought to be, what God's law says we must be, We experience this gap. But what happens is when we live life according to that lie I mentioned, the person who hears, uh, this is who you are, but you should be or you must be, will always hear that as an invitation to try to bridge the gap. 100% of the time, the person standing here in living life, believing that their biography carries the weight of their belovedness, will always try to do the work of bridging the gap, right? You must be, we can fill in the blanks in our cultural context. I walked down Madison Avenue in the rain thinking about Mockingbird as a collector, but also noticing that I don't look a lot like some of the people in those Madison Avenue stores, right? I could tell you that when I give a Mockingbird talk, I'm aware that I'm not as funny as David Zoll. It's very unfortunate, I try to be. I sort of aspire to that level of humor, but I'm not. And I feel the gap. But what if the gap is made more explicit and more extreme? What if the gap says something like, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you should love your neighbor as yourself? What if this Jesus says in Romans 5, you must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Now, doesn't that sound clear enough that we would give up the attempt? But the tragedy, and sometimes, as Mockingbird helps us see, the comedy of human life, is that we don't just give up because it's impossible. We just take it as an extra hard challenge. You must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And we sort of go, I guess I'll try, and life is like, I never saw David Zal do that, by the way. Um, <laughs> and you think that would be the end of the story, right? That, I mean, that was a clearly catastrophic failure of the human attempt to bridge the gap between who we are and who we must be. But you flash to the next scene, and the human being is back here again. Well, what, you got anything else for me? And this is where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is particularly merciful by making this impasse so clear when he says, well, let me offer you the interpretation which is also an intensification of God's holy and righteous law. You shall not murder, but that also means don't be angry, don't call your brother or sister a fool. You shall not commit adultery, but that also means don't have lustful intent. It's not just that you shouldn't swear falsely, you just should." speak honestly always, with your yes being yes and your no being no. And again, you would just think that would be the end of this game. And yet, every one of these becomes a new occasion for the attempt to bridge the gap. And I'm getting older, so I don't do this as many times as I might, but it's carpeted. They put in carpet for this talk, and I was really grateful for that. And so, the human says, I'll give it a shot, and I noticed I keep sort of spreading my legs. It's like, oh, I used to skateboard. I think that's what's going on. Um, And the human being just does it again and again. And you flash to the next scene, and here we are. And at some point, you realize that human life is an episode of the Roadrunner, right, where Wildly Coyote is trying to participate in an impossible quest to catch the Roadrunner using all of his resources and all the resources of the Acme Company. Every attempt is genuinely and literally fatal, and yet each new scene is a new attempt. This is the comedy of heirs that is the hunger for esteem that Mockingbird has chronicled so meaningfully for so many of us. But how do we ever get out of it? It keeps coming. Holy, righteous, and good things keep being said, like you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. These are good things, not bad things. These are promises about what God and God's grace will one day make us and will be true. But how does it ever interrupt this pattern? What does it do at this place? And here's what I want to suggest. That when that word comes to the person caught in the pattern, it always does the work of continuing it for another moment. I think this is what Paul means when he says, when the law came in, sin increased. Or he says, I didn't even know what it meant to covet until the law said, you shall not covet. It will actually sort of intensify and accelerate our attempts at this in the first instance. But because of the clarity and the power and the diagnostic depth of Jesus on these questions, it's not the only thing he does. Remember how that section on the Sermon on the Mount ends? where he said, you should go the extra mile, you should turn the other cheek, you should love your enemy. He then says, and you should be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we do a lot of things to try to manage the nature of those commands. We both try to energize people in their attempt to bridge this gap, and often the, the form of energy drinks takes um, a kind of distorted version of what are beautiful and good Christian practices, but we say, if you pray or read your Bible, or go to small groups or something, you'll suddenly be more able to bridge that gap? Or we just try to reduce the distance with the he didn't really mean sort of techniques, right? Well, he said you shouldn't call your brother a fool, but all I did was call my sister an idiot, you know, so that, <laughs> I, I, I'm doing much better right? I have two daughters, so I know that this one is not hypothetical. Um, I also have a son who thinks that it's funny when they do that. But we have a 10 million ways of doing this. One I've never understood, by the way, and I'll just sort of tell you in case you do. I mean, I'm, my job is to read the New Testament in Greek and talk about what it originally meant. But one of the things people often say is, well, that command to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect isn't so bad as it sounds. Because the Greek word that we often translate perfect just means to be whole or complete and mature as God is perfect, which is much easier to do. (laughs) Okay, you know, so I don't get that. Um, But anyway, this is what's going on. I'm just about done with this, but this is what's going on. So the first thing that happens is that this gets sort of accelerated when these you must come. And when we hear them from this place, we always try to jump. But the power of God's word of truth and why it is a form of God's love to the hiding and to those who need help is that it's also a word that can hit pause in this pattern, not when we're here, but when that word catches us right here. And at that paused place, what we get is a truth that is louder than the lie. You see, we think, I guess I will be like God. That was the lie. I guess I will not die. And there's just this clarity about God in his loving goodness that says, no, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And as Ephesians 2 says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. So it's not at these repeated moments of attempt that we get to hear that honesty, but it's at the paused point, the place of failure, that that honesty comes. I'm I'm gonna switch mics. Fair warning to the audio. team. And it's right there. You guys are amazing. It's right there at that paused place where honesty and hope come together. All of that was just to make that point. That up there in the repeated attempts, we need God's love to do something that we ourselves will never do, which is sort of get behind and underneath and through all the denial and the facade and the pretending, and actually hit the bedrock of our actual need. But that kind of diagnosis and honesty doesn't seem to happen in the pattern of attempt, but at the paused place of failure. And it's because of that that the New Testament and people like Martin Luther can talk of this repeated pattern of God doing God's work at that paused place of failure. Luther puts it like this, God's word is a remission of sins. It's comfort for the lowly, a Lord of life and salvation, to recall the damned and the dying. Jesus helps the penitent, comforts the afflicted, recalls the despairing, raises up the fallen and humiliated, justifies the sinner, gives life to the dying. It's Luther, so he can go on for a while. But what I want to highlight there is just the when, the where, and the for whom in all those cases. It's at the point of sin and being lowly and dying and being humiliated. It's for those who are sinners and those who are despairing. It comes at that place, at the paused place of failure and pain and confusion and bondage and fear and death, that the gospel is actually spoken as good news. Paul says it like this in Romans 5, and notice the when and the where and the for whom. At the right time, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. For God demonstrated God's love like this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you hear the for whom? The sinner, the weak, the ungodly. Did you hear the when? While we were still those things, not after we stopped. Did you hear the where? In the midst and in the place of honest need and failure and fear and bondage. There's a remarkable passage in Walker Percy's in my opinion, not remarkable novel, called Love in the Ruins. Great title, good passage. Read The Listener by Taylor Caldwell. Read this sentence from that book. But we're practicing honesty today. Um, So there's a, a marriage that is on the rocks is too light. It's in the ruins like the whole world of the novel is in the ruins. And the wife says to the protagonist, Dr. Tom Moore, she says, don't you see? People grow apart from each other. We're dead. And he responds, I love you dead. At this moment. And then she says, dead, dead. I whispered, love, love. It's just this powerful reality about the when, the where, and the for whom. Paul says that God's love comes to us at that paused place of need, the ruins of what he calls the present evil age, at the place and at the timing when we were still sinners, when we were weak, not when we thought we could do it, but when God loved us enough to show us that we couldn't. That's why Luther said that what we needed to study was two sermons. One sermon that tells the truth and that seals the tomb of the old Adam and the old Eve by exposing the charade that that lie is, but that is our ordinary life. That psychosis that is the typical human, but wholly unreal belief that we can bridge the gap, that our biography can carry our being loved. But God's loving word is not just a truth that seals the tomb. It's also a funeral sermon spoken at the graveside that rolls away the stone. God's word, spoken to you in the paused place of failure and fear and honest need, says, like Walker Percy, I love you dead. But God's word also says, as Ephesians has it, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is why Ernst Kazemann once said, the tomb is not the boundary of hope, because we hope in the God who empties the grave. The life, the freedom, the hope that God summons from this tomb is this strange life that Paul describes as I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's this strange righteousness that he describes as not based on works of law, but based on the gift of God, that is, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. This is not a return or a second attempt back in this default pattern of life that Becker so helpfully describes as the denial of death. St. Paul just describes this: the pattern of life when you actually are dead. Trying to breathe life into your own bones. What did God say to Ezekiel? Mortal, can these bones live? And the human answer is, of course not. But we'll spend our whole life trying. God's answer is, yes they can. Because I love you dead. This is what Paul calls justification by faith in Jesus Christ. All that means is that God's final judgment is not waiting in the future and based on your life. It is already enacted and spoken in the past and in the present on the basis of Jesus' life and Jesus' death. That's what George Herbert can say, and I'm just about done, when he thinks about the final judgment and he says, the Almighty Judge will look at every person's book. and It makes him pretty nervous for two stanzas. He can then change his tone in the third stanza and say, but I resolve when thou shalt call mine that to decline and thrust a testament into thy hand. Let that be scanned. There thou shalt find my faults are thine. As I think Paul would want to add, and thy righteousness is mine. If you want to know what God will see and say to you, if you want to know what God is seeing and saying to you, you don't read or write your autobiography. You read the Gospels and you look at Jesus and you behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The value of the verdict on your life is not an uncertain question decided on the basis of your biography. It is a fixed and final word already spoken by God in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All that needs to be done is done. It is finished, Jesus said. What will forever be said and spoken has already been spoken. You are righteous, God says. And so God's fundamental, his basic word to you that he's already said in Jesus is also God's final and God's forever word to you in Jesus. You are mine, wanted, understood, forgiven, cherished, not a mistake, loved. And because God has already said it, and because God will only and forever say it, what it means to participate in any form of ministry, it means to be a mockingbird. It means to listen to, to learn, and to repeat forever. The song that God is singing it means to say again today and then again tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow what God has already said and forever will say. And God's saying it right now. And so I get to say it right now. You are God's beloved son you are God's beloved child. In you, God is well pleased. Thank you, and thank you, Jesus.